Today's episode of Off The Block Swimming Podcast is proudly brought to you by our great sponsors, DMC Fins. DMC Fins are the best training fins in the business. Just have a look around in everybody's kit bag on pool deck and there's a pair of DMC Fins in there. Swimmers, surfers, they're all using DMC Fins as their choice of aquatic propulsion. Even superstar Cody Simpson is using DMC Fins to help with his training towards Paris 2024. Head over to dmcfins.com.au right now for all the latest deals and discounts on fins as well as hand paddles and other training aids and use the promotion code off the blocks for a 10% discount at checkout. Away they go. No problems with the start. There is two 100 in the second in it. Gary Hall Jr., the extrovert, and Ian Thorpe battling it out down the pool. Thorpe is starting to go away from him. Podcast is a man widely regarded as one of the best coaches in the business. And who can argue when you read down his impressive resume? He has coached 20 world records, three Olympic gold medals, 16 world championship golds as well. He's coached some of the best Aussie athletes of all time in the pool, including Libby Trickett, Just Shipper, Liesl Jones, many more, many who uh, have already been on the podcast as special guests as well. Uh, we are very fortunate that he's been able to join us for the very first time. Welcome to the show, Mr. Stefan Vidmar. Mate, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you very much, Robbie. Well, it, it sounds like a blast from the past, but a very, very beautiful one, yes. Yeah, no. Uh, it's always, um, I, I enjoy, you know, um, reading people's accolades to them you know, on the podcast because I mm. think um, sometimes, you know, we go through life, don't we? And we sort of sometimes forget, or you guys do, I, from from the facial expressions as I'm reading stuff. And even you could imagine some of the athletes are like, oh, wow, yeah, no, I did that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a great, great memory. Look, uh, I, I was a swimmer as a young kid. Uh, always loved water from probably the age of two. I can remember first in the water, then around the water as a coach. And uh, the good time, fun time, and, and just amazing memories it gave me beyond what I ever could dream of as a, as a little Swiss boy growing up in the Swiss mountains, <laughs> you know, more cows than people around and, and so on. So it has been a, a great, great journey. Yeah, mate. Well, we're definitely going to get through that and we're going to talk about, uh, you, you know, your time growing up in Switzerland as well. Mate, I want to sort of touch on just quickly um, the, the Tokyo Olympic Games um last year um you know what was your sort of uh, perspective on that as as not just a coach but a, a swimming fan in, in general how did you see those mm. games and um what, what did, did you pick up on anything from the games yeah i mean uh, the biggest thing is uh very clearly we're still not anywhere near our potential as human beings moving through water uh, all strokes are still developing. Uh, sometimes maybe distance events leave a bit behind and then suddenly sprint goes again and so on. But across all this, the strokes, uh, it, it just keeps on uh, getting faster and faster. And, and if anyone thinks um, that's it now, you know, the world records won't get much faster. I think we, we don't even comprehend yet what will happen in the future. Um, the pandemic again, you could have expected maybe slower meets, a slower meet. Um, maybe sometimes in distance events, you could see that, that some paid a price. But then again, a lot of people didn't. They, they just could still perform. Um, uh, I think um, how much training, we have to do training, how much training, how much hard training we have to do to actually swim fast. Uh, I think coaches will reflect on that again because probably no one had the perfect preparation of two, three years in the lead up to the Olympics, yet there was incredible fast swimming. Um, so, so it was exciting. The most exciting thing is that I think the Aussies are, are back where we all want them to be, you know, standing on the top of the podium, hearing the national anthem. And, and um, that, that, was, that, was, that was one of the most beautiful things of the whole games. 
Oh, mate, well said. And absolutely from an Australian perspective, uh, I think everybody was going crazy in their lounge rooms. And a lot of people, I live in New South Wales, so a lot of people here were in lockdown at the time um, oh. due to COVID. So it was like a, a perfect timing for the games to be on. And um, I know I was not alone when we were jumping out of our seats. And many of us, Stefan, were doing, you know, the reactions that Dean Boxer was doing at the games. Yeah. We were doing that in our lounge room. So that's why yeah. uh, when yeah. anybody ever mentioned it, I always just said, well, I think he's just reacting like, you know, we're all reacting. It's just the camera was yeah. on him because, uh, you know, everybody was excited, especially uh, with that performance from Ariane, you know, climbing that yes. mountain. Uh, mate, I want to ask a, a, just a quick question. You mentioned there in terms of, um, the sport progressing and we're nowhere near where we're capable of. Uh, it brings mm. a question to my mind in terms of um, assistance to that. So the sports grows, obviously. We, we can go back mm. to the, the crazy suit days in, in 2009, yeah. which I know is, is still uh, a blight on for some people when they look at the records and they're like, oh, man, how's that still standing? Where do you stand yeah. on in terms of the sport progressing but also, you know, progressing in, in the right way and not letting, you know, technology and, you know, science get too involved mm. in, in that. Yeah, and, and particularly the older we get, you know, sometimes the more we feel like, oh, can we go back to the old days? <laughs> uh, I mean, even things like the star block, um, originally I, I wasn't for it and now it's just there, you know, with the kicker in the back or then the backstroke wedge and so on. I think there's certain aspects that, that we just have to accept and go with it. I hope uh, Fina learned the lessons with the suits, you know, that we stick to uh, now those regulation and really faster swimming comes from uh, smarter coaching, smarter sports science uh, approaches and so on. Um, I mean, if, if you look at the game, when I arrived in Australia in the late 90s, I would sports scientists, sports scientists still would have done probably a lot of different sports. Uh, and then across the next few years, they suddenly became a physiologist for swimming only, or uh, even a, a physiotherapist, another specialist side, or um, a biomechanic for swimming only. And, mm -hmm. and once that started to unfold, I think um, they just were dreaming for longer about pure swimming performances. They were consulting anyone else around them. And I think we still see now the, the, the next level of, of support that comes towards these great performances. However, then at the end, it's a coach in the middle, the coach driving it. And, and in Australia, I think we have so uh, many incredible passionate people like you, Robbie, with your podcast, you, you'd contribute something great, great to the swimming family. And, and uh, that, that's what the coaches, you know, stand for, whether you're the coach who does um, age group swimming and, and you still get up at the same time as the coach who does maybe, you know, the more mature swimmers up to the high performance. Um, we, we're in it together and, and the passion of the Australian coaches driving that sport. I think that, that that's another thing that will never go away. So there will be always like a Dean Boxer who is just so passionate about finding the next thing for their athletes. Mm. And that's a celebration. That's, that's, you know, four or five years in the making, particularly with this athlete, he has many other great ones, um, driving that, dreaming it. We dream every day for them as well. And and um, and it needs it. If, if you want to be up there, then it needs an incredible amount of that, you know, and, and um, I'm sure that some people will learn now from these guys. Um, I remember a lot of uh, conversations with like a Simon Cusack when he just started to come on the national team, maybe 2007 and so Kate made the first uh, national team, you know, and, and, and then how he, he was a very good listener, always fairly quiet, you know, but you could see there's something big going on. And, and then he translated what he saw what some of us did, he translated that into the next thing. And now I think that will happen so people see what Adin Boxel has done. Even Michael Ball, you know, has been there for 30 plus years. Um, and, and, you know, we have to keep on watching them, learning from them. But then someone has to step up. Someone has to say, I, I, I want this and, and another bit more. And, and I was fortunate when I arrived in Australia, but with Scott Volkers, I had a Michael Ball next to me and, and so on. We, we, we could help each other lifting, lifting every day. And, and we need to do that. If Australia wants to stay at the top, we coaches have to drive that. And then we have to be smart with getting great, great people around us and sports scientists uh, at the top level around us who, who then drive that as well.
Well, mate, I'm glad you said that because you've led me perfectly into my next question. Legitimately, this was my next question. <laughs> Getting out of your comfort zone and challenging yourself professionally mm. in a new environment is not something that's foreign to you. You, you, mm. you seem to embrace it and enjoy it. Mm. Has it always been that way, though? I mean, we'll get to a little bit later in terms of asking that more broadly and what coaches can be doing, because obviously yeah. this podcast is a tool for, yeah. for coaches to be listening to. But just for you personally, did you have to develop mm. that or, or was that you as a child and as a youngster coming through? Were you always sort of ambitious and wanting to, to learn more? Um. I, I'm not sure about ambitious, but but uh, it was just very natural, uh, the thinking of, of doing a lot of things at the same moment as good as I can. So I remember when I was 10 years old, my other squad members, you know, we just had a toilet break and they were hiding behind the corner. So I was like, <laughs> what are you guys doing here? And it's like, oh, we just don't want to, um, you know, the, to get in the uh, in the pool yet. And so I was like, what are you talking about? Uh, like, this just will make you a slower swimmer. I, I couldn't comprehend at all. Like, it was the strangest thing for me. Uh, but it, it, it's not always easy. Uh, and at uh, 17, 18 years of age, when, when I had people next to me who I felt they could have done better, mm. but they didn't, uh, they, they dropped the bundle. They just thought, oh, that's good enough for today. Then I couldn't understand it either. So I, I was I was not competitive towards them, but it, it got to me when I felt someone didn't live up to their potential. And it took me a long time to understand that that's a, a very good thing for me to potentially to perform. Uh, but then sometimes you have to choose your moments when you do this. And um, like even Samantha Riley, who used to be a world record holder, world champion in a feedback uh, psychology uh, end of the year session, she she said to me, just let us celebrate sometimes for maybe a day and then challenge us again. And uh, and don't go instantly to the next level and next level. Okay, we've done this and bang, I'm the next hurdle, the next hurdle. And so I, when I learned that lesson, I'm not sure. Today's episode of the podcast is proudly brought to you by Arena Australia. Arena are the very best swimming brand in the business, whether you're after the best race suits, racing training goggles, training aids, or even team gear for your clubs, Arena Australia are the way to go. If you don't believe me, just look up on the blocks at the finals of most events at either nationals or international events, and you'll see the Arena logo front and centre on the fastest swimmers' race suits. They just are the best. Head over to arenaswimming.com.au right now for all the latest sales and discounts, and let them know that Off The Block Swimming Podcast sent you. Uh, mate, next question I've got for you, obviously, just around your work with uh, with the Singapore team. Joseph Schooling um, didn't do mm -hmm. as well, um, certainly compared to his former games in 2016, that's for sure. Uh, from an Aussie perspective, and this is where the question more comes from, you know, the media yeah. can be quite harsh to our swimmers than when mm. we don't perform to a certain level and of expectations. Certainly for Joseph, I'm, I can only assume he, he would be some sort of a megastar over there with what he produced in yeah. 2016. Was there much backlash from the media uh, around mm. that? Mm. Uh, I mean, in, in the big picture, yeah, yeah, there, there was, because he's the only Olympic gold medalist in the history across any sport. Slash. So it's not just swimming that he's, it, it it's across all sports. Uh, and he's the only, there are some other medalists, but most of them are actually not homegrown there, so Chinese imported. Uh, so um, it, it was big. Uh, it was a lot of emotions, disappointments. They quite quickly uh, understood that there was there was more than just a performance. There's an athlete behind it who didn't purposely go out there and, and make it a slow performance. Yeah. Uh, in, at the World Championships, he, there was already similar air aspects going on with the performances. And it's a young man who has to learn to deal with all that. A, with success, uh, a superstar in the own country. He really wanted to come back and train there. And he loved a lot of the things uh, as well, training. Um, but then uh, there's life. The second he goes in the street, uh, it, it, it just was hard for him as well. Uh, then on the other side, he was, I think, 22 or 23 when he was an Olympic gold medalist, achieved his life uh, goal. Uh, 
Mm. And then what's next? So he had to redefine himself. His university came to an end. Okay, where do I go next? What, where I train next and so on. So a lot of things, identity, self-finding, um, and, and that comes always first, before sport. And so he, he's actually still training and he still wants to do things. And it's all about him now. It's like he wants this still and wants to see what he can do from here on forward. What will come, I don't know. But I love that he, he it's not about proving to anyone else because he has done that already. Olympic gold medalist, never ever anyone can take that away from him. Mm. Uh, but it's now soul searching and finding a way. How can I, Joseph Schooling, do something special again? Do you think, um, Stefan, and I sort of go back to a, a conversation I had with Shannon on the Shannon Rollison podcast, which was mm. about slaying your dragon. Um, and, yeah. and, and I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term, but just recently yeah. in Australia, we had Ash Barty, you know, the great number one tennis player retire mm. from, from tennis. And Shannon texted me and said, it looks like she slayed her dragon. In other words, it looks like she's achieved mm. what she set out to achieve. And she's quite at peace mm. with that. Do you find yeah. that's the struggle for athletes once they maybe do hit that pinnacle like Joseph did and getting that gold medal to find that next gear to go, <laughs> okay, well, I've sort of done it. What, what What's next for me? How do I challenge myself? Yeah. I mean, where you, how can you go higher than the Olympic yeah. gold medal? Yeah, yeah. And th there's like two different examples that cross my mind. One is Michael Phelps, where I feel he has a personality. You're almost, sorry, like almost a disorder of, of like just driving again and again. Yeah. I mean, Athens was pretty good as an athlete, but mm. now that was not what he wanted. So he goes for <laughs> Beijing and gets eight gold, and then that's still not the end. And, and then he has a comeback for 2016. I mean, a personality like that is quite, quite unusual. But then on the other side, you have someone like Roger Federer uh, as a Swiss who is quite dear to my heart and, and, and where you think that guy does it in a totally different way. It's, it, it's like he's, he's gliding through even the media, you know, like how he gives the media everything. He's liked by young and old and by, by uh, Asians, Europeans, Americans around the world, no matter what age and cultural background um, and, and how someone like that does it. Or Hugh Jackman in the, in the media in, in Australia, you know, he's, he's balancing that fame and potential pressure, but how he internally um, uses it or, or doesn't allow to affect him. Um, to me, they're, they're, they're big stories. And the higher an athlete goes up there, uh, the more it, it not doesn't just become about them. Um, you know, Libby, when she started to go fast, hardly anyone cared about it. And then later on, suddenly you, you're a name, you break a world record and so on. Everyone has an opinion. Mm. And so how does it potentially not affect you or how can you let them talk and learning without you just keep on, you know, almost smiling and so on. Um, and, and there are massive challenges. Now we add on the top of that, 10 years ago, social media. Mm. I mean, it just multiplies everything in, in many different ways. And, and I think that that's another challenge for coaches, athletes and, and people around them um, to figure out how, how to do this in a, in a wise way because they're professionals and they probably want to earn money, but not in a way that it burns their energy too much or, or then gets to suddenly up, that's it, uh, I have to now. So I don't know Ashley's story and, and her background. Is it really that she achieved everything that she wanted or would she maybe like to continue just athletically, but then on the other side, she can't, doesn't want to deal with the whole thing. Mm. It's like uh, Naomi Osaka, who has yeah. more that side. She just broke, I think she still loves somewhat the game, but then everything else has has taken the fun away from her. And again, Federer to me is just incredible what he's done now over more than 20 years, you know, to stay up there. Uh, yeah. Oh, mate, I think he's a perfect example of somebody who's, uh, I guess, at peace with what he's achieved. And he, he now sort of, I'm sure he plays for a bit of money too. The, the coin doesn't hurt, but um but he you know he can see he plays because he enjoys the game and he just goes yes. out and challenges himself he's not playing mm. to prove a point to anyone other than maybe yep. himself at times and even then sometimes i'm sure he just is playing just because he's enjoying 
the mm. sport itself. Mate, talking of Switzerland, you swam there for many years. Let's take a trip down memory lane. Let's go back, mate. What was it like growing up in Switzerland? I've only been there once when I was like 24, just sort of out on my own. I did a bit of a European tour by myself. Uh, yeah. Scared the shit out of my family because, you know, they didn't know where I was. I was just wandering around at times. But I did spend yeah. about a week in Switzerland. My God, the hills, mate. I nearly had a heart attack just walking around some of the hills <laughs> and stuff there. And um, But I enjoyed it. Lovely people, uh, a great country, great food, great drinks. Um mm probably had too many drinks but I, I enjoyed myself talk to me about your time growing up uh in switzerland mm. yeah i mean uh, I, I can i think i'm one of the most fortunate person being able to call switzerland australia my two home countries and and i have citizenship of the two so they're they're incredible countries but yet vastly different um obviously one landlocked and and uh mountains and so on and, and winter sport is big uh, I, I was always, I always love more the beach than the mountains, the sun, than the cold. Um, and from a young age, as I said earlier, and I, I loved water and the environment. And then I loved being in the water and performing in the water for myself a lot. I didn't like to be beaten uh, as a character, but I, I really, that self-discovery of improving, uh, going step and step forward for myself, improving myself. And that, that's in my brain set as a, uh, mindset as a coach as well to to find constant steps forward for my athletes um it, it was beautiful uh, swimming wise um i mean i had a few national records but they're nowhere near like <laughs> the athletes i coach later on um i felt very quickly in sporting terms that i needed at that stage to leave the country um because what I wanted was something different uh, than what that nation could provide me. My head, foreheads, I had to get sore from banging against the <laughs> wall. And and um, so my top athlete, who was my first Olympian in Switzerland, she said to me, you know, you have to leave. Uh, you, you, you can't do this here. Uh, and I said, yeah, I have, the plan is already in place for me. Um, so it, it, um, I, I got a few contact details around the world. So I traveled for one year by myself around the world. But the only goal was to be, become a better coach, uh, to learn more from great swimming nation like the US. And then I want to spend half a year in Australia. So be careful what you wish for, because the half a year turned into 20 years <laughs> later on. But again, a great, great thing that happened that way. And um, uh, so I think I brought along a great education so I have a university bachelor degree, physical education, but there's as well a master's in science. Uh, I probably would have done 20 plus different sport coaching uh, level one and twos, and then probably another 10 level threes from all different kinds of sports, um, and like track and field or um, uh, gymnastics and, and very particular ones as well to learn how to teach really hard skills. I mean, the gymnastics coach they have to be pretty good at that or track and field about strength connection, but still some endurance, aerobic and aerobic events. Um, so I was um, put myself heavily into those fields as well. So I had a great education at the biomechanic background, sports physiology, sports nutrition, sports psychology. So I started all that. But the biggest problem in Switzerland was the application then on the ground. And so yeah. once I came to Australia, I could instantly talk to specialists, which was great. But what I didn't have yet and what Scott could teach me was the, the belief of, of the, that you can, you can be the best in the world. I wanted it, but I just didn't know uh, how can I translate that into the daily actions you need to do to step up, step by step uh, forward. And, um, and later on, that, that became like my second skin as well. And at the Queensland Academy of Sport in those days, uh, we probably had 18 Olympic sports, world-class coaches. Um, in this context, uh, every day I could mingle with them. I could, I, I walked down the, the corridor and I just thought about my swimmer's core function, alignment and so on. And there is a, the long uh, jump coach, one of the best coaches in the world. And I go like, there is a man I can maybe ask. Mm. Uh, and then, so you talk to him or the, one of the top gymnastics coaches, his athlete won six gold medals at one Olympic games. And, and so I can tap into him about core function and so on. 
Um, so I was in this field of, of, of great, great specialists, but across many sports. But then at the same time, I started to make national teams with Australia. So I could tap into some of the most beautiful swimming minds in this nation. And, and, um, and, and there was, there was the, the constant conversation around something that crossed your mind as a coach, something that you carry with you from the pool home and, and you still reflected on it. Um, I, I was in fortunate positions that I always could um, ask some some great other specialists, maybe not specialists in swimming, but from other fields, and and go uh, and then apply some of these things, and and then just learn more and more to trust your confidence and your um, internal um, uh, feelings that that you um, the intuition that that. Uh, I used to think, yeah, that should work. But later on, even before I did it, I knew this will work. Mm. Uh, so the, the, the growth of confidence with more and more decision-making across the years. So, so to me, that's a journey from Switzerland. Great education, but needed to learn to apply it in a, in a certain context on, on swimming top high performance levels. Uh, and, and so the mixture of Australia and Switzerland created something unique for me, at least. Mm. I mean, it seems like it sort of goes with that theme when we talked about it earlier in terms of that thirst for knowledge and, and looking outside the mm -hmm. box. And I, I sort of want to, you know, just for the coaches listening, um, you know, the question in my mind if I was listening to that just then would be, oh, that's nice, Stefan, but what if I'm not at a QAS? What if I'm just out there and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm on pool deck and I'm in a country or a rural area? Yes. You know, I, yeah. I don't get access to these people. Um, mm -hmm. For me, I'm proof that you can still get access to these people through the yeah. podcast, I, I this is, yeah. you know, that's just me selfishly say, you know, I, yeah. I, I sort yeah. of did that because I was that guy. I was sitting there saying, <laughs> well, how am I supposed to do this? You know, no one's coming to my pool. And then I thought, well, stop whinging mm. and, and start looking. Yeah. Yeah. But it, would that be your advice for, <clears throat> for, for coaches as well to, you know, okay, well, if you're not in that environment, actively look. And, and you know, yeah. from my experience, you guys I, as, as experienced coaches are more than willing mm. to, to give your time. Yeah, I think it's 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 a difference between you waiting someone to come to your door and knocking there and say, "Tada! I got some great information for you," or you going out there and chasing it yourself. I mean, I I remember it was 1996 um, before I planned that trip around the world, um, and we had this big international competition in Switzerland, and there was actually some Australian coaches arrived there, um, and so one of these guys started to talk to him and just question, question, questions, you know, and, and it, there was that frost. And, and so the, he, he then at the end of the conversation said, look, if you ever come to Australia, like here's my business card. Um, so, so I think he, at competitions are great opportunities. Pick the moment because it can be that the coach is um, mm. busy with something, but there's moments as well when you, you probably should try to put yourself out there and, and communicate. But it's not just about world-class coaches because they're they don't necessarily have the answers for you. If you coach, you know, 10 to 12-year-olds, then yeah. you have to find different specialists and, and recognize who are maybe leaders in, in our world of swimming in that field. Um, I still think as a, as a coach's uh, profession, we should find how can we reward uh, and award those levels of coaches. Uh, we had in Queensland a, a guy called Peter Diamond, um, who probably produced almost the most of swimmers who later on make national teams. And, and uh, Peter was a great technician and, and, and so on. And from the age of eight, maybe to 12 years, that's the, the passion he had, the desire he had. And so if you, if you have coach at age group, you're better off talking to someone like him than mm -hmm. talking to me because he has maybe uh, more lessons to teach. Uh, be very specific about what you want and, and then go to people who maybe has more likely something to offer in that field. Um, and so th there, there's opportunities everywhere. Um, I, I know I had a lot of coaches just, they, they called me up and say, can I come and watch some of your training sessions? Like, for sure. Um, just um, it depends on, on when it was and, and what it was. They maybe yep. just had to sit more in the grandstand or I gave them a stopwatch uh, and they just, um, I made them work for me, you know. The pressure's um, on. <laughs> that's it. That's it. And and that's that's how I learned as well. I mean, I yeah. traveled around the world and showed up on pool deck with a, a guy. I had the, the business card and 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 then um, 
I just he put actually stopwatch in my hand, and I had to co to coach a world record holder, and I. I I kicked myself, but uh, <laughs> we got through it. <laughs> there was Susie O'Neill. Yeah. Mm. No, that's the bit, mate. That's it, it's great advice, and um, I always think too. You know, when you do go on pool deck to learn from someone, you should always have a, a pair of stopwatches in your pocket because you just never know, and you don't want to get caught. You don't want them to go, "Oh, yeah, mate, you'll take this." Then you go, "Oh, I don't have my watches," and then the look you get is like just one of disappointment, <laughs> like, "Oh." <laughs> thought, you, thought you were better than that. Um, mate, in yeah. terms of your 20-year your run here in Australia, and we talked about, you mm. know, the learning uh, experience, yeah. and you, you were around so many top coaches already mm. by this stage, you've developed somewhat of your own coaching philosophy. But who, while, while mm. you were here in Australia, helped you adapt your coaching philosophies? Who helped maybe add, and uh, you know, little elements here or there? Who did you yeah. lean on for advice while you were out here? Uh, I mean, definitely beyond the most, uh, Scott Volkers. Um, so I was for three years his assistant coach in the lead up to the Sydney Olympics. Um, again, he, he created belief that I can do this well. But I remember the first probably week that I saw with him, he asked me, so what, what is it, what do you see? And I said, like, I never thought that human beings can work that hard that many times within one week and just come back the next day again. I, I was taught, you know, about recovery. And so, yes, you need recovery. Mm. Uh, but but when when is recovery right and so on? And how much do you need? And, and how can you speed up recovery? But so that was one thing, how hard these athletes could work. Uh, and, and they came back for more the next day. Uh, so I had to learn that. And I, I, I probably then translated that into something whenever you see the athlete uh, whatever they've just done, no matter whether they were world record holders, so normally there was always something left. They could have done more, better, and in a human, in a, in a nice human way. That's my job to get that out of them. So when they think that was it, that was their limit. I had to find uh, more ways. And again, Scott helped on that journey. Uh, later on, um, on the national team, there was certainly uh, with Dennis Cottrell. He was, I love talking to Dennis about anything. Uh, one of the most passionate person swimming wise. Um, he, um, as well about skill and strokes, even uh, looking at sometimes in the difference of the middle distance swimmer versus distance swimmers versus um, a long distance swimmer, mm -hmm. what, what changes even in freestyle and so on. Um, but Dennis was always there. And then Bowley and I, from, I like to think, well, we probably coached for six, seven years next to each other. Uh, so Michael Bowl, um, we, uh, I consider him a, a, a great friend and, and has been a great journey at the good old Valley Pool, where the whole thing kicked off in those days. Uh, and then forward. Uh, the mate behind you, Shannon, um, um, we, I think we, I like to think we had a healthy relationship in the context of rivalry. Mm. Um, it was, um, it was, um, uh, you know, he had some great, great athletes out there and without him being there, without him and his athletes being there, I, I, I don't think, uh, Libby in that context later on, Melanie Schlenger are right. I, I don't think we would have together created and produced what we could produce. So, so it, th these, um, challenges and support and assistances and learning opportunities come in many many different forms and and uh so i mean i i am i was a competitor as a coach i, I wanted my athletes to to do bloody well um and so and i think again that can be a very healthy thing if i don't care whether they win or lose uh, I, i'm not sure how far i would have gotten mm. <laughs> as a coach but that, that's probably the list. But then there's there's more like a Ian Pope. I absolutely love talking to him about technique um, and so on. Um, he, he was a great technician as well from, from the early days. And he could open my eyes in, in backstroke to a certain level um, and so on. But that, that's probably on the coaching side, the list. Yeah. But then learn from the talent in the pool as well. Mm. Uh, I mean, in the early days with Samantha Riley, Susie O'Neill, um, as the top ones, and later on, Libby, uh, Liesl Jones, Chess Shipper, they all do it normally in their own way, in a different way, due to their personality, their physiology, and so on. And, and we have to be able to adapt 
to that as well. The, the mm. different levels of psychology, number one, probably, and then the physiology, they, they, they can do different things. That doesn't mean they don't try or then they, we just have to figure it out. Yeah. Um, and mate, you, know, you mentioned some great swimmers there and a little bit later in the chat, we're going to get to them and just get your thoughts on working with them. I'm interested mm. though, you know, obviously you came to Australia in almost, I want to say the boom time of Australian swimming, but certainly this was, this was my fandom. This was always just about, you know, becoming a teenager. Mm. This was like the perfect time yeah. to be a swimming fan in Australia. It was one of Australia's, you know, number one rated sports on TV, mm. which is crazy mm. to think, um, you know, now, you know, when people don't watch stuff unless it's on YouTube or in a one mm. and a half minute clip on Instagram or something, but it was on prime yeah. time on channel nine. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so you, you can yes. sort of give me a, a unique perspective on this. What did you mm. think coming into Australia that swimming in Australia was known for? So when you were coming here, what was your perception of Australian swimming? Yeah. And now when you look back, what, where do you think we're at now? Have we moved away from where you thought we were or yeah. is it much and much the same? Um, so I arrived in 97 and, and my, in January and a few days before Australia Day, and so I was in Sydney and I, I just walked down to Darling Harbour and, and um, I heard there's a speaker on. And so the speaker was, I didn't know that person at that stage, but it was Samantha Riley. And so what's, what crazy nation is this? That a, a swimmer talks to the nation on Australia in the day in the most famous harbour, you know. Mm. And, and so I, I was utterly confused, actually. And not, I didn't know that two weeks later, actually, I meet this person and, and show up at Scott Walker's pool deck where this athlete was in the water. And we became great friends afterwards. And uh, so, so that was my first experience. I remember one of the advertisements in the lead up to the Sydney Olympics where it said, like, I used to want to be a princess and now I want to be a swimmer. You know, like that kind of stuff shows the identity of this nation. And it's it's beautiful. And, and so many people from the outside, I, if you're in, into swimming, you're so jealous on Australia because of Australians lo not just love their swimming, they know their swimming as well. You know, they can have yeah. a conversation around a few things where overseas that wouldn't happen. In Switzerland, when I came, if I saw then had booked lanes, you know, uh, the public was really upset with me. I said, why can't I swim here? Like I pay taxes as well, you know. And in Australia, my experience back then was they came to me, asked me, excuse me, uh, where could I swim, please? <laughs> because I see you have your squad in the water here. So again, they're hugely different um, attitudes towards that sport and and early on I, I thought it was crazy but I absolutely loved it because this is what I wanted to do um, the early days you mentioned Channel 9 you know with Ray Warren's amazing amazing uh, commentating um, uh, the highlights uh, of so many whether trials or, or world championships and Olympics were how they reported on it and then unfortunately we lost them. Um, there was a decision when I think HD1 uh, became the swimming channel. And I yeah. think we, we lost the mojo there. Uh, I hope with uh, 2032 Brisbane Olympics uh, and the performances of the Australian team just at the last Olympics, um, I hope we, we kind of get that mojo back a bit. Um, the, the landscape of the media world will re refine a bit our superstars in swimming and give them the time as well that I feel we des they deserve. Uh, but that's up to higher powers, you know, a smart direction of, of Swimming Australia and so on. Uh, but I hope um, it will move towards um, Brisbane 32 in, in, a, in a positive way, like it has for, for Sydney. You know, we're almost in a similar stage now when Sydney was given the games, seven years out, we're eight years out now from, I know it's, what is it? Not 10 years still. Yeah. But um, I hope that dynamic will, will be great um, and launch something very, very special again. Mm. What about from a coach perspective, mate? What did you see Australia as as a swimming nation? Did you see us uh, as a, a distance swimmers? You know, we were obviously mm. famous for the 1500, the men's 1500 yeah. Uh, yeah. and dominating there for many years. Do, do you think the perception of Australian swimming has shifted in, in that regard? I mean, when I arrived, there were the men were quite good. Um, 
on the female side, there were a few good ones, but they were certainly not dominating. And the men won in the relays medals at the highest level, but the women uh, in, in Sydney, for example, I, I'm not sure that they actually won a medal, maybe a bronze in the medley relay or so, but they won very few times medals there. Um, so um, if I looked at the training programs back then, um, that they, they were quite hard, um, challenging, demanding, um, not necessarily um, created for speed, for example. So our yep. speed events in those days uh, weren't as good. We were really bad at 400, 1500 meters. And, and I normally say, you look at the nation's results on the, on the higher level, and then I can tell you how they train uh, as a nation across the board, like the Hungarians. Uh, they're not famous for sprinting. Uh, the Chinese are not famous for sprinting. And they still have this demanding, hard, tough approach. And everyone almost trains the same way. Mm. And so in the 2000s, I think Scott was someone who changed it a little bit, a bit more sophistication of race pace training, race specific, particularly very, very good for 200 meter swimming. Mm -hmm. And then someone um, like Shannon uh, came along with his younger girls who, who had a passion. He used to have some good distance swimmers as well. So he has abilities in that event as well. Mm -hmm. But he then had these young uh, girls and, and, and he just, he went for it. And, and I like to think I then could add somewhat of race specific training, uh, another layer of how to approach maybe coaching a little bit different. So uh, looking, what's the final speed you want in a race? So let's say the 50 meter, the last 50 of a 100 meter freestyle, what's the speed you want there uh, to be able to be produced under fatigue? And how can I create in training fatigue that we maybe still just can hold that pace mm. instead of just making it hard and tough and so on? be a bit more specific up speed about stroke rates and so on. And I think we, we shifted that. And then the psychology of, of how to coach girls uh, is certainly uh, different than, than how to coach boys or, or young women and young men. And I think uh, Don Talbot was uh, leading in the role where he suddenly created women's camps only or women's meetings only to create not just um, to create leaders amongst the girls, but then as well, Got us challenge us to think okay how can these girls perform to another level it's not boys and girls together uh girls only and and so on and um we embraced that throughout those years and 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 run with it and i think 2008 showed us beating as well the american girls in the gold medal tally like they did in the last tokyo olympics again the first time since then which was great to see uh, mm. so the girls uh, have, have unbelievably performed again up to a great great level yeah mate, absolutely um talking about sort of speed there and sprinting certainly from an outsider looking in mate you've had great success with sprinters in our country I uh, mentioned mm. some of the names earlier and, and Libby Trickett was always one of my favorite swimmers to watch. I still remember I was in the stands in 2007 when she went 52, nine in the, in the, in the mixed relay. Um, I'm yeah. sure, I, I think there's, is there not a story about her sort of challenging Phelps in the, in the marshalling area or something yeah. and him having yeah, no yeah, idea not... what to do with this crazy, crazy girl sort of pumping yeah. her chest yeah, she out literally at him. stood up against him. And, uh, <laughs> the chest and it's like bring it on you know and and so on and like he he literally didn't know what to do with that and, and uh she she was just in a great state of mind it was like um after five gold medals at the world championships in melbourne a few days before that the next weekend uh the weekend coming up she got married so she was just in a really good position and and uh just went out there and enjoyed it really showed what she really really could do um, yeah, that duel in the pool was a was a great event. Again, the girls beat the American girls there as well, and and there was um, a lot of specific things need to go. They're not accidents. These performances, particularly when you see across the board, uh, there's some a lot of very specific uh, stuff had to happen in the lead up. Uh, yeah, 
Sorry, I think I forgot what the question was. No, no, it's, no, I wasn't even, I sort of was just throwing that in there because as I was asking my question, it was reminding myself <laughs> of that moment because, I mean, the yeah. stands were packed. It was like going to a football yeah. game and, and you know, I, I know we were, the crowd was going crazy when she did go 52.99 and to your point about mm. swimming in Australia and the, the general knowledge of people, I mean, people were pretty clued on to how quick that was when she yeah. went that in the, in yeah. the uh, in the relay but mate my question was more around obviously in terms of sprint training what are some of your favorite sets to develop speed and my second part to that question is how important is it to develop efficient technique as as well as the speed element so we're going to get that physiological sort of <laughs> shift but yeah if we're not really connecting that with technique you yeah know, it's got to marry yeah. up right yeah, yeah. I mean, particularly the, if we talk now to the younger, the, the coaches who coach, uh, you know, 8 to 11, 12, 13-year-olds, depends again, boys, girls, and early mature, late matures. Uh, it, it really must be about technique at those uh, uh, older, younger ages and, and um, technique and, and some energy system training, but not at the cost of when you can always create a fast, maybe 12 year old and so on, then uh, because he's maybe just taller and stronger than everyone else. But at some stage, they will all catch up. Everyone will be the same. And what stands out then is, yes, there's some specific fitness, but skill is, is really what makes the biggest difference. Again, at the Olympics, you could see that the most skillful swimmers normally win, win the events, you know. Mm. Um, so, so we have to be uh, very good uh, about that. So in, in the younger age, uh, teach very early speed as well. Um, even if it's drills, uh, teach them slow, but teach them fast as well. Execute speed, drills, and so on, where, where it's about fast precise execution and so close a gap uh, that they get better at that. Um, the, the anaerobic training really doesn't happen as much yet at that younger age group. But then when we start to talk about the older ones, um, um, in, I look at it one thing, every warm up you get opportunities, A, develop some very specific skills, yep. but then apply that skill in, in we I call them stroke count sets, where it's over 50s, over 25s, but where it's somehow linked to efficiency. Um, yes, you want a certain speed, but not at the cost of traveling long distances per stroke. So how can we use warm-up sets every day and then translate the skill part into that stroke concept and check in, in the main sets on these aspects every, every session. And then even in the swim down, we maybe saw some struggle. They could do it at slower speed or they could do it at sprints, but once fatigue kicked in, they broke down, the technique wasn't sound yet. How can I readdress maybe some of these aspects in the swim down again with drills and skills? Uh, so on. Um, so to me, it's the storyline throughout a session and throughout the weeks uh, to come that we can transform uh, specific uh, skills into stable skills, into stable skills, fresh, fatigued, under pressure. So that's then the last last level where they at the competition have to be able to to do it. Um, and, and, and early, I mean, I my program early on was probably a very good program from 50 freestyle up to probably 200 breaststroke. So at some stage, Libby had the 50 freestyle world record on the women's side and Liesl the 200 breaststroke world record. So that's the slowest 200 event. She was 220 uh, 16 years ago. And then Libby was the first one under 24 seconds. So we had the range of 24 to 220 I believe my program can uh, create um, world-class performances across that range. So you as a coach, you want to look very carefully at, okay, what, what, what happens really with my athletes in the water when they perform? What do I allow them um, to perform at? Uh, meaning, uh, for example, uh, I have a 50 swimmer goes 30 seconds in a 50 freestyle, a young kid, and they go 108 in the 100 freestyle. Mm. are you happy with that or they go 104 in the 100 freestyle what's the call what do you decide on on these numbers so if i have someone i double the number and i add plus eight 108 i feel like hey, hang on like we're not fit enough to come home in 100 uh so we have good speed but if i maybe have someone goes 30 and then swims 104 
I double that and have only four seconds difference, is that good? If I have someone three seconds difference, is that too less? So do I focus more on speed because of that and, and give them more in that area? So, so we have to reflect on what is it with our philosophies? What is what I want for these swimmers? And then what is it what I actually see technically and, and energy system training wise, fitness wise, uh, does it reflect my philosophy as a coach? And if somewhere close enough, okay, keep on going down the journey, but constantly improve it a little bit. And if not, then you have to figure it out. My swimmers used to be fast, but they didn't come home fast enough. I had to become more specialist for the second 50 of a 100 meter race or the second 100 of a 200 race, mm. how to coach that. And again, um, Libby against Jody Henry was one of these challenges, you know, where we just had to figure it out. Uh, it was in our face. I didn't like it that my swimmer was in the last 50 meters, swam over the top. It hurt me. It was my identity as a coach. Mm. And so I had to figure it out. I, I had to go there and try and figure it out, work new things. And so back-end speed sets came from that. So early on, we I make them tired. And then I gave them, at the very beginning, 330s and 150 on 110. And the 30s were at the pace we wanted to come home later on from the speed charts. I mean, people yeah. are, I think, still familiar with those ones. Yeah, I still and have so we them designed myself. those speed charts. Yeah. And, and so and I was particularly interested in that second half. And, and, and so the, the 30 meters from 50 to 80 meters and, and 50 to 85 meters. And so I created specific fatigue that we just could hold 330s and a 50. And then 335s and a 50. I never got to 340s and a 50. With my program, the way I approached it, that was somewhat too much. And the 335s and a 50 on 110 mm -hmm. was just enough. I could have gone on 130, maybe 40, 40, 40, and 50. That would have worked and so on. But I, I could figure out what is specific enough for that athlete that then in the race, it reflects a better performance coming home. And, and so that was one of those journeys that back-end speed sets were created around that. Um, seeing that my athletes got beaten again, not liking it and, and find ways around it. And then suddenly it took us four years almost to be that one athlete you know it's a, a long painful journey <laughs> <laughs> well i think we can all as coaches resonate with what you just said in terms of having that athlete at any level where you know you're seeing um you know swimmers charging over the top of them uh, and then working out okay where, where did we go wrong but uh, you know the lesson there for everyone is as you said you went back and you recalibrated you had a look at okay what are we doing right but also what are we maybe not getting right and then you've readjusted and um, yeah. You know, I think I've said on the podcast many times, you know, just talking to you guys as, um, you know, experienced uh, and successful coaches, that's the common thread that I'm noticing that people are always just looking for answers. Uh, no one's ever just settled like, no, I'm good. This is how I do it. Everyone's still, you know, I spoke to Greg mm. Troy and, you know, I think 68, nearly 70 Olympians or something he's coached yeah. and, and he was still, Great. you yeah. know, being innovative and looking at, I'm sure he's still got his stock standard ways of, um, you know, his bread yeah. and butter, as you say, but he was still looking at, at different ways um, to go about mm. it. Now, I mean, in terms of talking about technique, I mean, we could go through all sorts of different strokes with you because it's not specific to freestyle, but again, it's a short form mm. podcast and we don't have five hours, mate. You certainly have yeah. more, more of your day to go. Yeah. So I just want to stick to freestyle in terms of mm. your model. Um, and you were someone that I, you know, learning from uh, as a young coach coming through, uh, you spoke very clearly about having a, a, a model in your brain of what you wanted to have your athletes, you know, where you wanted to Not everyone is exactly the same, but you had a, mm. a you know, a guide mm -hmm. as to what you wanted to see. What are your sort yeah. of freestyle technique? markers what's your model look like what are you looking mm. for in your athletes when it comes to freestyle technically yeah so if, if i look a little bit more at the shorter events 50 maybe to 200 then then it's um you got two uh upper body acceleration phases of left arm and right arm and somehow we have to be able to teach ones that each arm is quite effective as as itself but then we have to teach a great overlapping of these acceleration phases and so again, it, it's not that we, I feel we have to give the swimmers all the time, the exact tools, how to do it, but that we challenge uh, their mind to, to coming up with good solutions as well. But at, at the end of the day, it's 
um, for sprint events. Um, my, my belief is if, if, if I get a great timing of the front end and acceleration combined when that hand finishes and I get early in a very effective way onto the other side, uh, that's already a pretty good model. Uh, stationary swimming on a cord or so can help a lot with that, but then we have to translate it again into stationary swimming. Uh, it has nothing to do with swimming at the end. So the faster you want to be, the faster you move through the water, the less mistakes with streamlining you can do. But to me, that, that, that's one of the main thing of, of figuring out um, what, what are the acceleration phases. The kick in the back, I'm, I'm still not sure how effective the kick is towards being a fast swimmer. Uh, so that the kick action makes you faster. Uh, I heard some numbers where biomechanic people said it's maybe 15% of, mm. of the speed and then the 85% is what? Uh, so more so upper body, but then the kick has a great function in stability. So I look much more as a kick in freestyle, a stability function, uh, anchor function, what we call. And, and um, we created a lot of drills around it. So kicking, I call it in a speedboat position, lightly up hill with weights holding them in the front where you have to learn to connect the toes through the core uh through the shoulders to the to the hands in the front a bit hard to describe it just but to me the anchoring function of the kick uh, i can go from a vertical kick slowly slowly in a horizontal kick without breaking the body and kicking kicking hold the function of kicking and then start to use the arms so it's the stability core stability function from the kick through to the shoulders that they can then assist in doing the, all these great things what we want them to do in the front um yeah i, I mean there, there, there's so many other things mm -hmm. I, I feel quite often in sprint freestyle the hand changes direction way too quick so they they go very shallow with the hand instead of creating more more depth downwards onto the stroke yeah uh, so yeah. you need to create first some depth to then accelerate over that top but how fast can I accelerate? Uh, quite often, most of the swimmers go too early, too fast. Uh, so uh, I want to have more softness in the front, but then more and more speed to the middle, to the end of the of the pool. So it's a timing, uh, again, uh, how to accelerate. So from track sprints with all different kinds of suits where you learn to be a bit more gentle and, and, and clever with acceleration. How hard can I go? The slower I swim, mm. the softer I have to accelerate. Um, and then figuring out that left-right timing. Anchor well through the kick, being really great streamlined, don't have a lot of extra movement sideways, and then working that, that front uh, part. But um, it, it's a bit... it's challenging the the verbal <laughs> communication <Yeah. laughs> of technique but yeah. um, that that's to me then then one of the simplest ways uh, you know when you ask a swimmer how long is a 100 meter race and they just look at you in a strange way and normal and they say well which swimmer swims only 100 meters most of them swim probably 105 up to 108 meters or something because all these extra little side movements and up and down movements so yeah. how can we actually make the race shorter just by aligning themselves better and streamlining better? So the whole um, aspect of drag management then really comes in and, and particularly freestyle has a lot of beautiful challenges with head action and feet action and so on. So teach some great skills in those areas as well. Yeah. Man, I love that bit, especially at the end there about, you know, swimming 105. It's something that sort of definitely swimmers don't think about. And I think coaches only mm -hmm. really, you know, think about when, you know, you sort of bring it up like that, like, oh, yeah, no, actually, it's it's true. And the mm -hmm. other thing I love about what you said then is just in terms of the legs and uh, and understanding and, and then swimmers trying to put that together when it comes to a race as well. I mean, it, I've got a swimmer mm -hmm. at the moment, a 16-year-old boy, and I'm only saying this because I'm assuming others can resonate with this when they're listening to this story, yeah. who, who's still yeah. in the first 25, 35 metres. It's just his idea of going fast is going hard on his kick. That's it, yeah. that's just how he, okay. in his brain, I'm going fast because my mm. legs are going hard and his rate's actually not, yeah. not where it needs to be. Then, yeah. as, as you would imagine, consequently, his last, you know, 25, 30 metres probably isn't where he wants it to be and yeah. he gets out with more questions than answers. So, you know, in terms of those legs... That resonates with me very specifically because it is important, isn't it, in terms of the yeah. balance of your your race? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's one side, it's energy. Uh, there's only so much energy we have to give in a race. And if we spend too much too early, uh, probably not that good. But then on the other side is sometimes uh, have, have a close look at the kick. Do we feel the kick someone creates a softness and, and maybe supports acceleration or that anchoring function? Or do we see some movement that creates extra drag, extra uh, movement, they slow down the body? Yes, there's a great spending of energy at that moment, but the impact of it is actually uh, quite a negative one. They could almost kick less and swim the same fast, but then have more energy left. So, so what is a great kick um, to support everything in the front and not creating more, more drag in the back? I, I think that's, that's um, a, a nice challenge there itself. And then the kick more so the fitness as well. So we, at the end of main sets, uh, we really work the kick again, uh, normally fairly short, but again, race uh, quality intensity. So uh, with the philosoph simple philosophy, if, if your legs get tired at, at any stage of your race, it's pretty much it for you as a swimmer. Yeah. So you want the legs to be super well conditioned uh, specifically towards the, the event and the race and, and so on. So you have to create not just kick sets throughout the week, but moments when they may be really tired. How can we shift it another level up uh, specific fatigue for the legs and then working them specifically harder um, skill wise that they still can do the job at the end of the race. So in the last 20 meters of a hundred meter race mm. that the legs still not just are able to do what they need to do physically as well skill wise. Today's episode of Off The Block Swimming Podcast is proudly brought to you as always by ProSwim Workouts. Nico and the team at ProSwim Workouts have been supporters of the podcast from day one and continue to support the show and the coaching community more broadly with their platform, proswimworkouts.com. Head over to the website right now and become a member to receive all the exclusive content, whether it's programming in and out of the water, thought-provoking articles, or even just sharing of ideas. It is a one-stop shop. And for all those just looking to browse, head over to prosumeworkouts.com to find free workouts, podcast tips, jobs available, and so much more. So what are you waiting for? I'll say it one more time. Head over to prosumeworkouts.com right now and let Nico know that Off The Block sent you. 